From WAMU 88.5, this is Metropocalypse. I'm Martin DeCaro, and coming up, back to the history books. Can we find the answers to Metro's current problems by plumbing the depths of the past? Plus, Metro may face a historic decision soon. Staying closed if the Nats are in the World Series? We'll try not to strike out with the bases jammed worse than the red line. My sports metaphor is just a bit outside as we go full throttle into the past. Episode 18 of Metropocalypse. The DC Metro historically has been a great strength of this region. Customers should expect extended delays and crowded conditions on trains and platforms. Can you imagine the World Series is the eighth inning of the game. The game is tied, okay? the seventh game of the World Series and 15,000 people in the stadium have to get up and leave. Ten years ago when the book The Great Society Subway, A History of the Washington Metro was published, that statement, which was made by D.C. Councilmember Jack Evans, would have been, well, a figment of our imagination. The Nats, who are they? And what, Metro's not going to stay open past midnight? But that's the situation we're dealing with. And to discuss it here live at Kramer Books, thank you very much, is the author of said book, George Mason University historian, Zachary Schrag. Professor, thanks for coming back. Thanks for having me. Yes, well, you've been on the podcast almost as much as I have. Well, not lately, so we're good to see you again. And let's start with that issue. First, let me, let me just gauge your response. You heard uh, Jack Evans and some others have also said this recently. We have to stay open for the World Series. What's your reaction knowing hist- Metro's history so well when you hear that? So I think what we're facing with all of the Metropocalypse is a question of what is Metro really for, what is it good at, what are its core functions. So, you know, in previous weeks, the debate had been staying open till 2 a.m. or 3 a.m. to help people who work late, who go out to clubs late. And there really aren't very many of those people. There are something like 4,000 people who ride in those post-midnight hours on a typical weekend night. Uh, So to run the whole system just for those people who are spread around town Uh, always seemed to me a little bit marginal to the system's core function. Whereas when you talk about, as uh, Councilmember Evan said, 15,000 people out of 45,000 who are going to be packed into the stadium, all leaving from one point, that's actually what rail transit is really good at, is moving a lot of people from one point out to a lot of other places. So I think there's a better case to be made for making exceptions for that kind of service. The other thing is, we talk about in policy and transportation costs and benefits. And some of those are quantitative. How much money will we get from the fare? Uh, But there are also these long-term sort of qualitative senses. Uh, And one of the missions of Metro that I, I think has gone back from the beginning is to make Washington a great city. That's one of the missions of a professional sports team as well. And so there's a lot of harmony in the aspirations for a great sports team and a great subway system, so to try to break them apart is pretty worrisome. And late night service is a political issue. We often don't speak about Metro in political contexts, but this is certainly a political issue, and it's the first big tension between, you know, in the abstract, when Safe Track was first announced, everyone said, sure, let's do it. Got to give this new general manager the room that he needs. He has a mandate to fix the system. Well, four months later, the chairman of the board, who stood behind the general manager during that safe track announcement a few months ago, is now already saying time for an exception. And uh, there's political pressure on Metro, as there's been in the past. We had Chris Zimmerman on recently, the Arlington County board member, who said, you know, in the 1990s, if we talked about cutting back service, we got killed for that. Editorials in the Washington Post, banged over the head by the governors in the states or the mayor of Washington. You can't possibly do that. So do you find that Metro, yeah, it is a political issue. Yeah, I think it might be more of a question about why anyone would expect otherwise. So uh, these are, you know, Metro is part of infrastructure. It's part of big technology. And whether it's a transit system or a nuclear power plant or an airport or a sewer system, uh, these are major public investments. And in a democracy, that should be a political issue. And there's also an issue of appearance here. I mean, who knows? Well, first of all, should we be taking it for granted that the Nats are going to be in the World Series? I mean, come on, right? Uh, sorry. Mets fan. He's a Yankees yeah. fan. We already have our issues. Well, about Metro that. runs on yes. hope. So yes. if you take that <laughs> out, then uh, yeah. it's not going to work at all. Yeah. Yeah, tell that to the red line a couple yeah. of days ago with that cracked rail. But yeah, I mean, people are saying, listen, this is the capital of the free world. 
we want wherever it's stations, if I guess it's Fox, to be carrying the World Series, cameras showing people streaming to the exits in the ninth inning of a World Series game, even if in, in that case there would be many people who need it, but you alluded to before, a typical night for late night service, there aren't that many people, but it's more of the image that we're projecting. Projecting. Right. So this again, and actually Chris Zimmerman can be very eloquent on this, is uh, looking at it from Econa's point of view. You've got the core functions, you've got sort of the wish list, and then in between the marginal functions and people trying to figure out where exactly you draw the line. Um, and I, I think you're right. It can't be uh, simply a question of numbers. You talk about greatness, you talk about images, and those images are going to last. Uh, this goes back you know, well before Metro, Pennsylvania Avenue designed for the inaugural parade that happens once every four years. Um, and yet that has been one of the goals of the planning in Washington is to have the city look good, you know, on those days. So um, to the extent that we'll have World Series, uh, I hope we do, um, then Metro should be, uh, I hope, part of that vision. We're going to see how this plays out. As mentioned, this is the first big dispute between the general manager and his board. It's the board that can overrule him here. There's a moratorium in place, but it's, it's uh, the general manager has up to a year moratorium. The moratorium expires next spring when Safe Track ends. But in the meantime, if the board wishes to make an exception for a World Series game, that can happen. And then I kind of got a kick out of it. You know, here's everyone saying just weeks ago that we need to fix the system. And now we have this conflict between maintenance and service, and already people are saying, well, we need to do, go back to service. Maybe it's only one night, but others who want extra service, whether you're a marathon or whatever it might be, are going to go knocking on Metro's door and say, hey, well, you stayed open for the Nationals. Why don't you stay open for me? So I want to talk a little bit now, Professor Schrag, Zachary Schrag of George Mason University, how you wound up here. Not just tonight, meaning, you know, you got here on the train. Mm. Did you take the red line? I did, okay. uh, with lots of other people in my car, lots yes. and lots of other people. Yeah. Oh, th those are all those folks sitting yeah, in front of us right now. Yeah. Yeah. No, how, in yeah. general, how you got in this podcast and how you became kind of the media's go-to person for yeah. Metro Context. Your specialty is not transit history, right? you, uh, urban studies, you have a wide array of subjects that you teach about, correct? Yeah, so I, I um, was interested in urban history and uh, interested in transportation, realized that it's really a mix of, trans of urban history and history of technology. Uh, so I drew on both of those literatures. But um, I did uh, grow up in DC. I think I took my first Metro ride in 1977 uh, to the circus, if I recall, at Stadium Armory. Um, and coming from New York, it really did seem like a joke. I mean, New York, you know, every <laughs> corner, uh, you've got your choice of a few different subway lines to get on. Uh, down here, there was this little stub of a blue line uh, that had just opened up. And, you know, then all of this happened. So uh, to see Metro grow in the 70s and 80s, to see all these buildings crop up around it for myself to be able to get places, including this bookstore in high school uh, without a car, that was all very exciting. Uh, and I think the book reflects the excitement of Metro which might be a little jarring to the newcomers yeah. who <laughs> wonder uh, where that tone came from. Yeah, and in March, we all know what happened in March, correct? March 16th, the shutdown, 24-day, all-day shutdown for electrical inspections. Mm -hmm. But I think it was at that moment where all of us in the news media said, you know what, we really have to start taking a close look at how we got here. And voila, we have a guy who wrote a book, history book about Metro. Uh, I don't know if your phone is still ringing off the hook, but have you found that your insights and your research have given you, I don't know, a valuable position to look at this long, steep decline? Yeah. Uh, I hope they provide some insight. Certainly, I did not write in 2006, beware, yes. Yes, uh, right. 10 years from now, this will happen. Sequel, no. you know? uh, historians are, uh, we struggle enough to predict the past. Um, you do not want us trying to predict the future. Um, I will say that in terms of, there, there are elements that can um, help. One is the finances. So part of what's going on with Metro now are questions of management, um, where it does seem that no matter what money gets spent, it's, uh, the inspections are not being done properly, or there's labor trouble. Um, but part of it, you know, a big part of it is simply the lack of funds, so that maintenance has been deferred for want of money, um, or, uh, you know, items delayed. And one of the lessons from the book is that there was never a really 
good time for Metro finances, except possibly the early part of 1972. Um, and the battles so, went back to the 60s, the, even before the system. That's right. And so um, in that sense, the fact that you know, you've got people saying there are these billion dollars of costs that are needed now, that will be needed in the future, we don't know where the money is coming from, uh, we do need to sort of think of Metro as a system that has lurched from financial crisis to financial crisis, um, even before the ground was broken. Um, and so, you know, one of the crises uh, came in the late 1970s when the uh, costs were going up rapidly with inflation, uh, where DC had canceled its planned highways and transferred the funds, and even those weren't going to be enough. And Congress mandated, or the, sorry, the Ford administration mandated a restudy of the system where they thought about cutting off big chunks of it. So instead of having a 100-mile metro, you might have a 70-mile metro. And so I look back at that, and that was resolved with a kind of deal where Congress uh, put in a lot more money, um, but they also got more accountability out of it. The region did have to do a restudy. And they also got in legislation the promise of a stable and reliable revenue system uh, source for Metro, which uh, was done with kind of winks and nods, and we still don't really yeah. have. We're still talking about that yeah. issue today. So in that sense, I, you know, I'm, I've been thinking about the crisis of the late 70s and how it might uh, give us some hints of what a new deal might look like for Metro with more help, but also more accountability. And the issue of funding, though, is tied to the kind of system we have. If you want to have a certain smaller system that's, say, nine to five workers coming in from the suburbs, the funding demands will be much different. And I think we started off the podcast talking about the demands of you know, late night service for baseball games, what have you. But there's the bigger picture of what this is really supposed to be. And don't, do you think we have like a hybrid now, commuter rail from the suburbs and an urban subway? And, and how does that work? Yeah, so Metro, uh, the very first plans for rail transit in Washington um, in the post-war era uh, were envisioning more of a strictly commuter rail service. So you had streetcars, uh, including some down here on Connecticut Avenue. Uh, Congress in the early 1960s insisted that uh, those be stripped away. And already people were talking about more of a commuter rail service, um, but that would have only served a fairly small number of people, and the big transportation option for the city would have been these massive freeways. So not just the Beltway, but all kinds of freeways uh, through the city. If you've been through pretty much any other American city, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, if not, you can go down uh, to the uh, Building Museum and walk a little east, and you'll see the Great Trench of I-395 that was part of that system, or in Southwest, the uh, Southwest Freeway 395-295. I always um, think of the Cross Bronx. Yeah. Um, what an awful And, highway. you know, one of... The, these uh, people in Washington were highly opposed to this at the time in the 50s and 60s, and, and one of the great projects of this century is going to be tearing down a lot of those freeways, um, or in some cases, burying them as Boston did. So um, what happened instead, uh, thanks to liberals, and that's why I call it the Great Society Subway, is that people in Washington were able to insist not to have the freeways, but to have more of a subway system. And so we get a hybrid system where it is moving out pretty far into the suburbs um, and you know you've got these long cars without too many doors but then unlike BART uh, it really does serve the center city um, much more extensively. This is Metropocalypse Live. I'm Martin DeCaro. You're listening to a special recording of the podcast recorded live on October 5th from Kramer Books in Washington DC. Let's open it up to a couple of questions. We've given you a lot to chew on already. Hi, um, Norm Hall. I live in Vienna. Um, my wife is actually a frequent rider on the Orange Line when it's working, um, which hasn't been... No, not very often. Yeah, not very effectively lately. Um, my background, I have a graduate degree in transportation myself, and there's design implications. When you design the system with two tracks, how surprised can anyone be that at some point you're going to have problems with extensive maintenance of the track and right-of-way systems as well as service restoration decisions. There was never a question of building more than two tracks, correct? Uh, it was certainly discussed, but um, I don't know of any system in the world that has built extra tracks uh, simply for maintenance. The reason you build extra tracks is so that you can have one track for speed and one track for local service. 
Uh, so again, I, I know the west side of Manhattan best. Um, it's extraordinarily local, the, the Broadway local. You've got stops at 96th, 103rd, 110th, 116th, every few blocks that train stops. And the reason it makes sense is that every few blocks you've got another many tens of thousands of people uh, living 20 stories high. So there's really no part of the Washington region that would merit that kind of hyper-local service. And so what we have here is much more of it's like it, it's not the express tracks that are missing; it's the hyperlocal tracks that are missing, and I, I don't think anyone would really want those. Um, I also like to point out—I think I may have be repeating myself on the podcast—but if you're in Farragut Square and you want to get to Capitol Hill, it's four tracks. Two of them are blue, orange, silver. Two of them are red, but there are four tracks going through downtown. Was there a point in time? Did I ask you this already? Was there a point in time where you said, oh, oh, we're in trouble here? So, you know, as a historian, I like to think about dates, where are the turning yeah. points and all the rest. Um, you know, I was doing this research originally in the late 90s, and I did have a little file called Slump, where there were accumulating incidents of, uh, you know, smoke in the tunnels and people getting frustrated and some of the things you see now. But um, all of that started looking a lot more serious uh, in 2009 with the Red Line collision because there you have people dead. And so it changes the meaning of having these uh, problems, these maintenance issues become something uh, much more dire, uh, which is a life or death matter. And so the red line collision, for those of you who are you know, relatively new, uh, this was a failure of signaling. Uh, the system was designed to operate automatically. Um, the operators and the cabs were kind of an extra. and. All of that depends on knowing where your trains are and having uh, in you know sensors and signals in the track bed relaying the information so that one train automatically knows where the next one is. And some of those sensors went down and two trains collided at Fort Totten. Yes, and there were warnings going back years, plural, years about this scenario. They were not heated, they were not dealt with. And that is why, yes, Metro has funding issues. There's no question. They don't have a dedicated funding source, one of only maybe two, if you count New Jersey Transit, uh, uh, that uh, in the entire country that does not have a dedicated funding source for its operations. But decision-making, execution, safety culture, uh, organizational rot, all these things that have caused problems yeah. for Metro that go beyond mere dollars and cents. The 2009 crash was a result of all of those things, not just money. Would you agree? There's, you know, debate about this. Um, if you ever have a chance to read a National Transportation Safety Board report, um, not only are they very well documented, but they tend to be very well written and uh, really get into some of these details. And some of them will talk about uh, whether there's a good maintenance culture, whether there's a good safety culture. And some of this goes back all the way to 1982 when we had the first fatal crash yes. in revenue service. Um, there have been 15 NTSB uh, investigations in Metro's history. Yeah. 15. And even going back to before when it, before its opening, there was one. Go ahead. And so in 1982, it was not an issue of, of maintenance, uh, of, you know, large-scale maintenance. I think there might have been some failed component, um, but it really was a problem of operations where you have someone in the Metro Control Center yelling at the uh, operators trying to get a derailed train back on track and not really knowing what the proper procedures were. So in that sense, uh, you know, some of the basic railroading has been a problem uh, going back well before the present crisis. You're listening to Metropocalypse Live at Kramer Books. Thanks, everyone, for being here. Historian Zachary Schrag, George Mason University, is with us tonight. I, I recently spoke to National Transportation Safety Board Chairman Christopher Hart, and he raised a, an issue that I had never heard before, and he thinks there might be something to this, that in the 1970s when the system was going to open, there was marketing out there saying, sounds similar almost to the Titanic, the system is so well engineered, the tracks and the tunnels so well built, and the automation, and it's the same automation system Metro uses today, ATC, was so good, the trains will never crash. And Hart believes that, uh, he, I guess there needs to be more research before he can prove this, that that mentality undermined any foundation for a safety culture, that if you have this idea that things built so well and the automation is so good it's never going to crash, then why do we need to pay attention to certain things? Do you have any insights on yeah, that? Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting question. I uh, need to think more about it, but it is, you know, it is a perpetual debate. So certainly uh, in the 1960s, the engineers, uh, I don't think the engineers would say never. That's not 
a good thing for an engineer to say, and the engineers I know are, tend to be more careful than that. The claim was more that you are safer with automation than without. So we can think of lots of human errors. Uh, the Amtrak crash in Philadelphia, for example, um, you know, that killed a lot of people. What are the headlines the next day? Oh, there should have been more automation to slow the train automatically. And obviously this is a debate with the self-driving cars. It's not that they're gonna be flawless, it's that they're going to be better than all of you people, quite frankly, um, at breaking when the dog runs out or anything like that. So never would probably have been a mistake, but that does not tell us whether automation was a mistake. So 1986, uh, Metro was only 10 years old, and already there were folks, very smart people, uh, did I just sound like a presidential nominee? Very smart people, who uh, were warning about today, and they were really prophetic, and it wasn't just by accident. They knew what they were talking about. So let's start with this idea of you know the system we have versus the system we want. In 1986, the Federal City Council produced a sum, and you, you let me know about this for some of my stories, a 200-plus page report about everything Metro was going to need, all the funding it was going to need in the decades to come. This, again, system was only 10 years old. Ralph Stanley, who is head of the Urban Mass Transportation authority or administration, which is now the FTA, testified before Congress on a day in 1986. He said, the federal government's going to pay for this. You, the jurisdictions, are going to have to pay, pay for the construction, is what Mr. Stanley said. We'll build it. But when it comes to operating and maintaining it for decades to come, the jurisdictions are going to have to come up with the money to do that. And we know from history that they haven't. How important is that confluence of, of things in 1986 to you? So the system was young, but what financial people are good at is projecting costs ahead. And this is why your financial advisor is yelling at you now that you're not saving enough for retirement, right? Um, or that, you know, your car has 150,000 miles, you might start saving up. And this is, you know, something that Americans tend to be really good at ignoring. Um, <laughs> so, you know, one, uh, I thought, one of the better stories on Metro to come out of the Washington Post in recent weeks didn't mention Metro. It was about all of these condominiums uh, around town that have deferred their maintenance in order to keep their condo fees low, and now the roofs are caving in, and the driveways are cracked, and the swimming pools are broken. And they're in a death spiral, too, because if they don't maintain, then no one wants to move there. If they raise the condo fees uh, to uh, be able to do the repairs, then no one wants to move there either. So I, I think this is not something that is unique to transit. Um, I think that uh, American culture, and probably other cultures as well, are not terribly good at really amortizing those costs and planning for the future. Uh, somewhere out there, there's an alternative universe um, where Metro is well-funded, but in that alternative universe, no, I have had glimpses of it. Um, in that alternative universe, um, what happens is there's a surplus from the fare box. And so Metro is constantly taking in money every time you swipe your fare card instead of losing 20% or 25% uh, every time you swipe your fare card. And that is either going into a fund that will make the repairs and do the rehabilitation, or it is paying off interests on bonds that you've already used to do the repairs. Uh, for that to happen, a lot of other things would probably have to happen. You'd have to have uh, automobile prices uh, more in response to the true cost of driving an automobile, or whether it's parking and gas and all the rest. Uh, maybe you'd have land use restrictions, all the stuff they do in Scandinavia. Um, but that was sort of the vague vision that was coming out of the 60s and 70s, is Metro would run a surplus, and of course that has never happened. We talked about 1986 and some of these prophetic reports, and, and here we are still talking about a dedicated funding source. And there is talk now of a regional sales tax. Uh, Maryland, Virginia, and D.C., maybe a penny on the dollar. Uh, D.C.'s uh, chief financial officer says that'll raise $500 million a year. You can pay for all your oper operating and capital needs. Uh, and when we discussed this when we did a podcast some months ago, I said, I, I don't know what the chances are of that, of that uh, passing because of an anti-tax mentality in our country. And you challenged me about that. I don't think you agreed. What, what do you think is preventing a regional sales yeah. tax from being passed for Metro? 
Well, this is one of the areas where the multi-state nature of Metro has been a problem in the past. I tend to think that that is exaggerated. There's a great book on the Los Angeles Metro uh, called Railtown by Ethan Elkind, and that's all one state, but I don't know how many little cities there are in Los Angeles County. It's a nightmare. Um, and the fragmentation of government there actually sounds worse to me than the fragmentation of government here. That said, when they did try to talk about a stable and reliable revenue source in the 1970s, uh, the politics between DC, Maryland, and Virginia were so different that it didn't really work. And you know, as a Northern Virginian, I can say that uh, we have repeated problems with uh, the assembly in Richmond uh, allowing Northern Virginia to tax itself uh, for its transportation needs. And if the capitals were not in Richmond and Annapolis geographically detached from Metro, maybe things would be different. I mean, that's a yeah, and point. actually, you know, this was a one of those things I simply did not understand going in. The men who uh, negotiated the original compact, so Metro, the Transit Authority exists as this uh, compact between sure. D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. There was a... Uh, a Marylander named Northrup, a Virginian named Fenwick, and uh, I think it was Walter Tobriner of the DC government at that point. And I asked them, you know, I, I got to interview uh, Mr. Northrup, Judge Northrup, and I asked him, you know, how often he got to see his counterparts. He said, oh yeah, every week, because he worked downtown in DC and Fenwick worked downtown in DC. So Annapolis and Richmond might be far away, but the three of them could all have lunch on 15th Street. So even, you know, when Metro was being created, in some sense, Virginia and Maryland were closer uh, than they were na than they are now. Uh, the other thing that's happened, as my colleague Stephen Fuller has pointed out, is at the time that Metro was really being planned, Virginia, Maryland, D.C. were all kind of equivalent in terms of the metropolitan area. And since then, a lot of the growth has been in Virginia, uh, population growth and job growth. And so that's one of the reasons we have the greatest metro expansion in Virginia. Uh, so the system is not as balanced as it once was. The metropolitan region is not. And 20, 25 years ago, when many D.C. neighborhoods that are now gentrified looked a lot different and they were, people weren't dying to get into the city uh, to, to rent small you know, mm -hmm. housing units and be able to live a car-free life, uh, was there uh, the idea of this being an urban subway system probably wasn't too prevalent then, or am I wrong? Well, at that point, uh, especially after the riots of 1968, but even beforehand, uh, the effort was tr try to revive the city, uh, both the old downtown east of the White House and the predominantly African-American neighborhoods to the north. And, you know, in terms of physical plant, that has certainly happened. Uh, the challenge has been uh, to get the benefits to the people who need them and not have that simply be another form of displacement. Um, so, uh, yes, in that sense, uh, people were thinking about a uh, healthier city, but, um, you know, one of the things we have not talked about is the racial implications of why metro we, planning. Yeah, why don't we talk about that now, yeah. the green line? So, uh, the, again, the original plan was to have a commuter rail, uh, and then people said, well, once the commuters get to Union Station, how are they going to get around? So then you plan out uh, some stations downtown, and that's why the red line is the first one to be planned. It was really there to distribute people from Union Station. And then people say, well, what about all these new office buildings uh, down along Independence Avenue? And so the blue line comes out of that. And the green line really comes out of the civil rights movement about, you know, people like Walter Fauntroy and Franklin Edwards and other African-American leaders saying, not only do we want home rule in the city to have political power, but we also want our share of economic power. And the way to do that is to put us into the same subway system that you're building uh, for all these federal workers uh, coming in from further outside. Um, so that's the genesis of the green line in DC. Uh, the, Prince George's County's extensions, that's a story I wish I knew better. And there's lots more work to be done, I think, on Metro's history. Uh, Prince George's was never as enthusiastic about Metro as other jurisdictions. Uh, when the bonds go to referenda in 1968, it has the lowest passage rate. Uh, you have, I believe, I haven't nailed this down completely, but I, I think it's pretty credible that the University of Maryland rejected a station on campus. Um, and you've never had the same obvious focus of federal employment that you do as you have in the Pentagon or NIH. And there's still a dozen or so undeveloped metro rail stations in Prince George's County. And Prince George's County is always used as the example when we talk about this issue. But uh, Metro's top planner, his name is Sean Cannon, he's a brilliant guy. He says that Metro could come close 
if not getting to an operating surplus, but come close, at least get its fare box recovery higher than it is now, if those trains heading out in the morning to Prince George's County were also full. They're full coming on in, but they're not full going out. Metro has excess capacity. Breaking news to anyone who's been jammed on a train lately, but there are plenty of empty Metro trains uh, in the morning and in the evening. It depends on which way you're going. You're listening to a special live version of Metropocalypse, recorded at Kramer Books in Washington, D.C., with Zachary Schrag, author of The Great Society Subway. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, why not subscribe on iTunes or NPR One or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have any questions you think we should explore on the podcast, let us know on our Metropocalypse Facebook group. This is Metropocalypse Live. I'm Martin DeCaro. You're listening to a special recording of the podcast recorded live on October 5th from Kramer Books in Washington, D.C. Let's get back to the conversation. Good evening. My name is Alex Van Oss. I've been writing Metro since it was a scratch in the dirt. So I was sad today to read in the Washington Post that there's friction between inspectors and uh, the D.C. Metro workers. I consider it a matter of family honor. I want this system to be the best in the nation. How do you think these two groups can come together and work more I'm upset that you read that in the post instead of at WAMU.org. <laughs> I've no, no professional jealousy whatsoever. No, the post does yeah. a great job covering Metro. Uh, well, all right, so there's this safety, over, uh, safety arrangement, oversight arrangement between the federal government and WMATA that's been in existence about a year now, last fall already. Uh, the federal government has always had safety oversight over Metro, but it's done it through what are called state safety oversight offices, local oversight bodies. Law was passed in Congress a couple of years ago that gave the federal government authority to supersede the existing local group. It was deemed um, ineffective. It was. It was deemed ineffective going all the way back to the red line crash in 2009. It was a toothless body called the Tri-State Oversight Committee. The only way they could get Metro to do anything was through publicity. Publish reports, hope the media picks up on them, and force Metro to change things. It's shocking to some people to think that no one really has ever had the authority to make Metro do anything. They can set their own standards for just about anything safety-wise and change them as they go along. So the gentleman asked about the FTA and friction between Metro. There are reports in the Washington Post. Uh, the FTA actually published these reports online, so I encourage you to go to their website. You can read these voluminous reports about instances where inspectors are showing up. They have authority to get to the tracks and check things out, and Metro station personnel are denying them access. I think part of this is just the regular tension you're going to have between an agency and the oversight body. But that's just the tip of the iceberg. There have been a lot of things the FTA and others have found about the way Metro is doing things. And um, I guess your question was, <laughs> how do we get this relationship to work better? Well, that's a tough one to answer. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Uh, as a historian, I would just say that friction between local and federal bodies goes back to 1800. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I think part of the reason that Metro was set up with that independence was to try to uh, push the federal government off uh, as part of home rule. Um, and, uh, you know, we actually see this with the airports, too. They were run by the Federal Aviation Administration for decades. That didn't work out terribly well for various reasons. They were devolved onto the Metropolitan Washington Airports Authority. So uh, there are, you know, concerns about oversight, but there's also uh, concerns about federal meddling that yes. um, I think fit in here. And with the board too, I'll, I want to get your question in a moment. But even with Metro's board, uh, when they do too little, they're uh, attacked as being a rubber stamp. They're not holding management to the fire. Then when they start meddling and sticking their fingers and everything, well, now look what the board is doing. They have these parochial interests. They're tearing each other apart, and they're not letting the general manager do his job. I, I don't have an answer to that. Sir? Uh, my name is Lester Rheingold, uh, and I uh, realize I've been writing Metro since the late 70s. Uh, so that does go... Uh, uh, goes back a ways. Uh, um, I appreciated what you said about the NTSB. Uh, uh, I used to work for the board. Uh, and the, in what uh, capacity? Uh, se several jobs. I was in uh, safety, what's called safety studies, and also uh, um, um, accident investigation. Okay. Uh, 
those uh, those uh, studies and reports that you mentioned. Well, I was writing some of those. Oh, so you have investigated yeah. Metro? Yeah. Huh? yeah. Oh, so uh, tell us what's wrong. Yeah. No, no, <laughs> no. I, uh, uh, I I left the board uh, long before uh, 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 those accidents. But the uh, but the studies and the board uh, and the reports that come out of the board. Um, uh, end up uh, at the back with recommendations. The the uh, the NTSB does not have uh, enforcement authority, and so what it does is uh, issue these formal recommendations, and then after the reports come out, they track them, uh, and they uh, uh, they have a system of categorizing uh, these recommendations. They call them open uh, yes. or closed, and then acceptable action or unacceptable action. Uh, so I haven't looked at those uh, those uh, those reports for for the the metro. Uh, uh, incidents. Uh, do you happen to know uh, what the status of those recommendations uh, uh, are? I'm glad you brought that up because the NTSB often is looked at as you know the gods here. Everything they say has to be you know correct, and often they are. Then they're very bright, and they're specialists. But I'm going to give you an example of one recommendation Metro is still trying to fulfill from the 2009 Red Line crash. That is that Metro should replace the 1,000 series rail cars first because they're not crash-worthy. Have any of you heard of the word telescoping in, in transit? The reason why the death toll was so awful in 09 is because one train basically went inside the other. It was like a telescope. And those, that rail car series uh, is not built to withstand that type of crash. But all of Metro's old rail cars are not going to really hold up all that great in a crash. However, uh, the 1,000 series rail cars are the workhorses of the fleet. They're actually among, still among, the most reliable rail cars in the system. But, and you were right, the NTSB can't force Metro to do this, but you know, they're compelling Metro to take those shiny new rail cars that you're seeing, take those and get rid of the 1,000 series first. That's going to take another year and a half or so to get rid of all 300 of the original 1000 series rail cars. And yes, car number 1000 and 1001 are still out on the system. The worst cars in the fleet are the 4000 series. I mean, they are mutts. They're terrible. Often, when you're stuck in something, is because a 4000 series rail car broke down somewhere along the line. They should be the first to get out. I mean, they're terrible. And you can look at this online, as Archie Bunker used to say, you can look it up, online at the Vital Signs Reports, uh, that Metro publishes every quarter, there are these statistics about how often these rail cars break down. They break down all the time. They should really be the first to go. That's me editorializing a little bit. If the NTSB was here right now, and I did see Debbie Hurstman today, she would scold me and say, no, you got to get rid of the 1000 series because they're not crashworthy. So that's one example of a recommendation that's still open. Metro has closed many of the recommendations from the 09 crash. It has another 10 or 11 from the 2015 Lafont Plaza disaster that claimed the life of Carol Glover. It takes time. These, some of these are very time intensive. So. The, uh, you had another question. Yeah, the, um, uh, just a small point, but uh, it's something I've wondered about. Um, a question on the original design of the uh, of, of, of the of the uh, uh, the platforms. Why are there so few uh, uh, seating areas uh, on the platforms? It's a good question. Um, you know, some of the assumptions uh, were laid out in '68 and '69, uh, and certainly they were thinking a train every two minutes. How long are you going to be? Uh, sitting there. That was for rush hour, not, yeah. Um, <laughs> well, you're going to be sitting there a while, but, but uh, in the train you know, in, in general, the idea is to, was to keep things clean, to keep them not cluttered, both visually and in terms of movement. Um, and so to have a bench in the middle of the platform would obstruct people. I think when I got off DuPont Circle, there was some fan and everyone was tripping over it. So, yeah, there was a fan there. <laughs> so, um, you know, you could uh, kind of see why you wouldn't want that. And then, uh, again, uh, you probably know that the uh, platforms are offset from the vault to discourage graffiti. And uh, I've had people from Montreal, which is, uh, when I was up there, the system was actually clean, but you can see where the graffiti had been scrubbed off. Montreal is a big graffiti culture and murals and all the rest. Uh, they were astounded at how clean Metro was, at least of graffiti, uh, if not of uh, other problems. So, I, you know, in general, you have this very open, uh, minimalist design and um, that's just been sort of under attack uh, for 40 years now, as people at Greater Greater Washington keep saying, but I've got this great idea for more clutter that we could add. Yes. You know, another thing I learned recently, because uh, it was in the context of late night service, Metro only started doing this, well, it's already 15, 16 years. I think 2000 or 1999, they extended the system to 1 a.m. You know that Metro was running four car trains then? 
Can you believe a four-car train today showing up at, I don't know, Gallery Place at 7.30 in the morning? Yeah. You know, uh, go ahead, sir. Your name and how long you've been riding Metro? My name is Phil, and I've been riding Metro since the fare was 40 cents. And uh, the question is, you, you, you were talking before about the, 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 the funding that the, the, the federal and the local. Would you say there was a component of pride, braggadocio, whatever, about our big, new, shiny Metro system compared to the old Dungy system in New York? that we don't have to invest in, in, in maintenance, that it's beautiful, it's big, and it will stay this way forever. You know, I think, well, I know that if I were writing the book today, I would be more attentive to questions of what assumptions were made about maintenance and rehabilitation. Um, but even, you know, I took pretty good notes, and I don't think people were terribly well attuned. Uh, so, you know, engineers can only look so far into the future uh, Hen Henry Petrovsky has written well about this, that you have 30-year bonds, uh, you have you know, some plans for expansion. Famously, uh, Eero Saarinen left blueprints for the Dulles Terminal to be expanded, and when they wanted to expand it, they said, eh, that's as good as anything else. Let's dust off the old blueprints and work with them. Uh, but at some point, the engineers just have to say, a future generation is going to work with that. And I, my sense is that uh, when they were doing these plans in 1968, 1969, uh, they did not have some master plan about how it should be rehabbed 40 years down the road. I, I really think I would have noticed that and uh, don't think I came across it. You're listening to Metropocalypse Live at Kramer Books with George Mason University historian Zachary Schrack taking questions. Hello, my name is Kendra Northington. I've lived in the area since 2011. Um, I work at Georgetown University, which, as we all know, does not have a metro stop. Um, so I have moved four times. I've lived in Alexandria, Fairfax, uh, Petworth, and now Mount Pleasant. Um, so I'm curious a little bit. I've heard different things as to why Georgetown did not want a metro stop. Um, so curious a little bit about that history as well as where do you think it might go in the future? I've heard of gondolas. I've heard of yeah. other things yeah. uh, that might happen. But curious as to what you think might actually happen. Yeah. So um, there were protests against Metro in every residential neighborhood where it was planned. Um, it was, there were people in Georgetown who were opposed. There were people in Arlington. Uh, there were people in Bethesda. Um, the one station that was actually canceled because of resident protest was the Oklahoma Avenue station uh, near the RFK Stadium. Uh, so a predominantly working class black neighborhood was actually able to get a station killed, not Georgetown. The problem with Georgetown is it's actually pretty spread out. So you put a station at, say, Wisconsin and M, and that's still a, something of a schlep to Georgetown University, for example. Um, and on top of that, you've got a lot of water, you've got uh, a lot of historic buildings, and um, it's much simpler to you know, do a straight crossing from Foggy Bottom to Roslyn. If you notice, those two stations are already pretty deep because Metro is getting ready to dive under the water. Georgetown's a lot closer to the water, so it would have been an extremely deep station. So it's actually kind of a terrible place to think about a Metro station. The simple answer has always been take the parking off of M Street, and then you can have two transit lanes. And whether they're streetcar or bus, uh, it's just waiting. The space is there. And then you have a much line more linear system rather than just one stop that is far from a lot of destinations. So there are, I think, still plans on the books to extend uh, the, the streetcar yes. street out. Uh, you know, but there are a lot of things you could do if you just got those, uh, that parking off of M Street. Yeah, D.C., uh, the District Department of Transportation, studying the western extension from, of the streetcar line from Union Station now, or the Hopscotch Bridge, to Georgetown, many years and uh, many hundreds of millions of dollars from now, and hopefully they'll execute that better than they did the first two miles. Come right up, uh, your, your name. How long have you been riding Metro? Hello, my name is Ben Panko. I've been riding daily for about a year and a half, but I have many fond memories riding when I was a kid on weekend trips to Smithsonian. year and a half. Well, I'm sorry. Sorry to hear that. Yeah. It's been a rough year and a half. <laughs> yes, you know, I came in and <laughs> everything started going to hell. But um, uh, I just want to ask a question that seems, I guess, kind of crazy now in this context, but... Uh, are the days of metro expansion gone forever? Because I, you know, I've heard rumors. You know, Fairfax County people in there are talking about expanding the Yellow Line south, and people talk about. You know, I know the Silver Line is still being built, but ever there's a big outcry. People blame its expansion for how bad metro is now. So, I mean, um, is there any is there any way that metro will ever expand in the future? I would say possibly yes. I mean, right now there are no plans, no actual plans. There's talk. Uh, and yes, there is that tension between expanding a system while you're not maintaining what you already have. But politicians are always going to love bright, shiny new things. 
Matter of fact, it's a lot sexier to cut a ribbon on a new metro line than it is to take reporters down into the depths of the system and show them a railroad tie that we just fixed. We put another $40 railroad tie in. Look at that. Um, Metro, I think, is done building new lines. The Airports Authority, I don't know how many of you folks know this, the Airports Authority is building the Silver Line. It built Silver Line Phase 1. It built Silver Line, is building Silver Line Phase 2. Or at least it's overseeing the construction through private contractors with a really wacky funding structure. I mean, talk about needing to find money from a whole different pots of money. Uh, I'll spare you all the details. I won't get into the weeds on the funding right now. Do you want to... Uh, Voice your uh, opinion on, are we done with expansion? Well, I think never is a long time. Yes. Um, and there are these projections for uh, DC population of a million. Yes. And this is, you know, uh, DC has never had more than 800,000, I think, during World War II. Um, so you could imagine that a lot more metro would be helpful. Um, that said, uh, it does, uh, you know, with metro ridership, dipping for the first time. That's right. Um, it doesn't seem like quite the right time to expand so much as to take a breather, fix what we have, and get that working. Yeah, so the, the dip, I'm sorry to interrupt you, yeah. Professor. We have a few more minutes. We have a couple questions. The dip in ridership has been used by some officials to justify no more expansion, no more new rail cars to, repl uh, to expand the fleet. And folks who are on crowded trains are probably saying, really? But uh, Maryland was able to push through replacing more of the older rail cars instead of using the newer ones that are coming online for a fleet expansion so you'd have more eight-car trains. Metro original goal, this was approved by the board of directors about 10 years ago, 100% eight-car trains in rush hour by 2020. Not gonna happen. Maybe 2025. Speaking of expansion, you may not see new lines, but Metro needs to expand inward, right? We need another loop on downtown and we need a new tunnel at the Potomac. And if you got a few billion dollars and some brave politicians in your bag, we'll get it all done. Go ahead, Dan. Um, I'm Dan Winston. I've been riding Metro for, I guess, about five and a half years. Um, we've heard a lot about infrastructure, uh, a little bit about funding. I want to ask a different question. I wonder if you can comment on safety culture. Uh, we hear a lot about safety culture. Currently, we need to build one. What was it like at the outset? Was, was there a safety culture or a culture of operational yeah. efficiency that's, that's changed since, since that time? Yeah, I wish I knew a little more about this. I can tell you that uh, the labor issues have been going back even before Metro operated because what happened was there were uh, four private bus companies uh, running the buses in D.C. in the 1960s. They were all losing money. Uh, they had some very bad... Uh, union relations, uh, there, there was a big strike in 55, and so Metro kind of inherited a lot of poison, and uh, some of you had the interview with the uh, union head, yes. um, some of that poison I think is still here uh, with the distrust. So again, if you look at the uh, 1982 NTSB report, that's a, a source uh, for people who didn't know, this was in the middle of the winter, it was the same day that the Air Florida plane crashed into the Potomac and a Blue Line train derailed, and it was actually in the process of trying to pull it back onto the track that they slammed it into a wall. And uh, I can't remember how many died there. Um, There's a few. I mean, since, uh, since 09, 15, including the crash yeah. at Fort Taunton, 15 workers or riders have been But killed um, the NTSB at that point was already saying there's not a great operational culture at Metro. Uh, so into the 80s, you had a, a better maintenance culture. And actually, the 86 report, that's one thing that says Metro has much better maintenance than a lot of other systems. But there were concerns about sort of basic railroading uh, already in 1982, and that's just six years after the system opened. And I know on good authority that there have been cases in the last year where a metro train operator has gotten into his train, relieving somebody else to start his shift, and has driven the uh, train the wrong way down the tracks. Now, there are systems in place to stop the train from going very far. Uh, the NTSB has said no, there, there wasn't a safety culture. After the 09 crash, they dug into everything, went through all of Metro's records. There was no safety culture in existence. Uh, Metro's board didn't even have a safety committee. Now the board <laughs> does. Go right ahead. Hi, I'm Antigua. I'm Arlingtonian. I've given up on Metro the last year, but before that, I read for, rode, rode for the last three years. Um, yeah. My question is why during the safe track have we not have they not seemed to push people onto buses buses mm. in dc are just confusing like if you don't know that line 41 goes where you need yeah. to go you're kind of sol and it's it just doesn't seem like a cohesive system that it should be yeah that, 
That's a, I mean, this is a question that really goes back decades, is that the bus system has always been confusing. Part of it is, in the original time, they were taking these four different bus companies. You know, they had the same personnel, the same routes. They were just spray painting Metro bus on it. But uh, in terms of late night service, there's another question. Why not run buses? Uh, you're not yeah. spinning up this massive machine just to transport a few thousand people. Metro did unveil, at least online, their bus proposal that would uh, be in lieu of rail. You can check it out at Metro's website. We have time for one more question, and then I actually have one more Short question, Sarah, for the professor. Okay. Go right ahead. Um, I'm Nick Ford. Uh, I was tweeting earlier today, and actually this bus service question leads right into what I was going to ask about. Where's late night bus service? Um, it's, you know, when I was in Barcelona, when I studied yeah. abroad, they have a wonderful late night bus service. Why can't we have bus replace rail after midnight? It seems cheaper, easier, yeah. and addresses the capacity. Well, uh, Metro, as I mentioned, they did unveil this proposal today. You could probably check it out online. Uh, I didn't have time today to take a little close look at it, whether it's workable. Uh, there is Now, there are buses already that run late at night, they, and they do stay open later than the trains. A friend of mine recently uh, left the uh, uh, Nationals game, and the, the Metro was closed. So he said, all right, I'll just take the bus home. And it took him two hours to get home. Uh, do you have yeah. any other thoughts to I add mean, before I I will say for the newcomers, uh, the smart trip integration is something, right? You just wave your wallet onto Metro, wave it onto a bus, whether it's an ART bus or a Metro bus, it all works. Um, so that was a step forward. The old system of paper transfers are more confusing than I can possibly explain. But um, it is uh, tricky because, uh, the, you know, uh, in New York, it's one thing where you've got these very long avenues. You know, this is the Fifth Avenue bus. That's all you need to know about it. Um, if you want to have efficient buses uh, running on our arterials, uh, they may, the routes may be complicated, and I'm just not sure what cities would be the best models. But I, I do feel that buses have been left out of this discussion. I agree, and it's a political issue, too. Buses, uh, Metro does not own the roads. Who's going to champion bus service in the district? Who's going to champion bus service in the suburbs to say we're going to set aside road space for a vehicle that carries 65, 75, 85 people versus 85 cars carrying one person each? That's a political issue. So. Before we give you a hearty applause to thank you for coming, Professor Zachary Schrag, I have one more question for you to wrap up our 18th episode. I, I've gotten the sense from hanging out with you a good amount, and I'm a history nerd myself, that you've, you have some personal attachment uh, to Metro Rail, not just as a historian who's researched it, but I think you believe in urban places and you want to see this system succeed. How has this been for you, watching this really ugly yeah. chapter unfold? Uh, well, obviously, it's been pretty grim. I think for anyone who's involved in Metro in any capacity, except maybe there's some economists who are cackling, I told you this would happen, right? Um, but uh, no, this is uh, a city that I love, uh, the metropolitan region that I love. And I'd much rather be here than in a much more auto-dependent place like Houston or Phoenix. I, I find those places uh, truly bewildering and disturbing. Um, and you know, we see this. Uh, nationwide, that a lot of places are looking to rail transit as a way to shape the city. Um, but none of those great dreams that you can have of a thriving center city, of people being able to walk places, to be able to bike places, of not having your city swallowed up by structured parking and freeways, none of that can happen if the trains do not run safely and reliably. So uh, we are being sort of stripped back to basics here, and I hope we can pull out of it. All right, everybody, Zachary Schrag, professor of history, George Mason okay. University. His book, The Great Society Subway, a great resource for understanding how Metro evolved from the drawing board to its expansion to a 100-plus mile system to what we have now. Uh, you should check it out. And thanks so much to Sarah Bellin and the folks at Kramer Books for hosting us tonight. And thanks to our audience. Y'all brave the red line to hang out with us. All the music you hear on Metropocalypse comes from WAMU's Capital Soundtrack Project. This episode featuring tracks by The Internal Frontier, The Harry Bells, and John Miller. Until next time, I'm Martin DeCaro. Thank you. Thank you.